It is 1827, and the sound and smell of squelching viscera is all-consuming. You watch Dr. Monroe in his white coat with even whiter hair and that drab, monotonous voice that could lull you to sleep if he wasn't brisk deep in a corpse's chest cavity. He laughs at that. A bit of spit gets caught in his beard and you're pretty sure that something from his mouth ended up on the unfortunate subject's lung. The man that you're supposed to be learning from is dishevelled. In fact, that's, that's too nice. He's downright dirty. And he wipes his bloody hands on his coat and hacks out a cough. You begin to question why you came all the way to Edinburgh to study medicine of all things. You could have stayed at home and become a clerk, or gone somewhere else and become a lawyer or an accountant or something that didn't involve nodding along over someone's decomposing liver. You feel the vomit rising in your throat. It's the same vomit you've held in every day for months, ever since the first time you made a holy show of yourself decanting your breakfast all over that ambitious young doctor in the front row. Hold it down. Never think about where the bodies come from. From Be Quiet Media, this is Scotland, a podcast about history and where we made it. I'm Michael Park. It is half past two in the morning, because doing what they're doing might seem like a midnight activity, but the chances of getting caught are way lower at half past two in the morning. The wooden spade drives down into the sodden, cloying dirt until one of the men says in hushed tones to slow down. The wooden shovel makes less noise than a metal one, but it's not silent and they really don't want to attract attention. The two figures in the gloom are occasionally picked out by the dim light of their lamp. The sweat from their foreheads catches the light and the shadows sink their eyes, making them appear dead themselves. The ghoulish figures continue their digging, getting quieter and slower the deeper they go, digging in a wee rectangle right in front of the headstone. It's not long until the shovel strikes something. Wood. A coffin. A head pops out of the hole and looks around, studying every eerie shadow cast by the surrounding stones. The quiet shoveling is replaced by the muffled impact of a crowbar on wood. There's an almighty creaking, a constant snapping sound for a minute until the head in the hole reappears. The figure hoists itself out, and both spectres reach in, pulling something immensely heavy from the hole. Then the two figures are a flash of activity. They push the soil back into the hole and make sure it's level. Then they bundle up the body in sheets and place it in a box on the back of a handcart. A third man hoves into view with a lantern. He checks if they've finished yet. He thinks he hears something on the street. They should hurry up. The best bodies come from the best cemeteries. But the best cemeteries have night watchmen. But the best resurrectionists know. Everybody has their price. Of course, the humble and strangely honest practice of digging up freshly buried cadavers to deliver to dissection rooms across Edinburgh isn't the story you're here for. If you've been reading about something cool from Scottish history that you'd like us to have a wee look at, then get in touch. 
we're almost set with episodes right up until kind of 2021 but we're always keen to chat with listeners and see what we can do to tell the stories that you want to hear thank you all so much for listening we really appreciate it It is a beautiful day in the city of Edinburgh. Two men are wheeling a small cart with a tea chest on it through the gates of a property on Surgeon's Square. One looks like he's been in the wars. The other is a handsome devil, even if he does say so himself. I've grafted every day of my life, sometimes nights too, and nothing has ever brought me down. Doesn't matter how bad things get. I'm from County Tyrone, but I've been all over. I'm what you'd probably call an entrepreneur. I've done startup after startup, selling second-hand clothes, repairing shoes, all that sort of stuff. But I think I finally hit on the one. I'm in the medical supply game now. You see all the doctors around the medical school are trying to teach anatomy from books, and that's not really gonna do it. It's harder to understand all the really squishy, bloody bits of the body if you can't see them squish and bleed. So that's where me and my associate here come in. I'll just ignore him as cracks rotten. I'm William, by the way. William Burke. Our business is delivering the finest, freshest human specimens to Edinburgh's finest medical practitioner. And let me tell you something, lads. Business is good. The other man snarls something to the attendant at the back door. The guy looks pretty on edge. His name is Bill Hare. The two men disappear into the back of the building accompanied by the ashen-faced attendant. Some time passes before the two men emerge again with the tea chest looking flushed and pleased with themselves. The attendant looks more devastated than before. This isn't the first time that these two Irishmen have appeared at the back of the dissection rooms of Robert Knox. In fact, this is probably the fourth or fifth time they've turned up with their tea chest, and every time, the good doctor is delighted to see them, even if he doesn't always deal directly with them. Ah, uh, we don't sell tea but nobody looks at you twice when you're home from the tea chest or the streets. That's the big idea. One guy even gave us a hand with it when we couldn't get the horse and cart. Helped us halfway up the grass market without even batting an eyelid. Ah, he'd have batted more than an eyelid if he knew we were making £10 off the good doctor. £10 in 1827 is about £700 today. It was more than a month's wage. This was a lucrative business indeed. Burke and his growling associate Hare were resurrection men two of the most reliable ones in town. We got into the biz by accident, really. My colleague here runs a boarding house. Well, he has lodgers. I wouldn't say the service is good enough to be a boarding house. Anyway, one day, some old soldier drops dead of something or other, and here's Bill out four pounds. Imagine going and kicking the bucket when you owe that much in rent. So here's me, making my way as honestly as I could, and there's Bill, trying to run an honest racket, and then I thinks to myself, I think, why not reclaim the arrears? We got the coffin from the parish, it was the least they could do for an old war hero or whatever he was, and we left him lying in the room. We snuck in, opened up the coffin, dumped the body under the bed, and filled it up with tree bark. They took away the coffin, and then we took the body, sold it to the first Anar, uh, Anap, An, Anap, uh, f- f- cotton doctor we came across. Doubled our money right there. Therein lies the rub. Under Scott's law, Selling a body to an anatomist wasn't illegal. The body didn't belong to anyone, and therefore it wasn't stealing. It was digging up the grave that was illegal. So there were Burke and Hare, £10 richer and, legally speaking, free and clear. But the attendant had said they'd happily take any other bodies they were able to provide, 
There was a shortage after all, and the young doctors of Edinburgh needed their education. Neither man fancied digging up corpses in the dead of night, and there didn't seem like much chance that Hare's lodger would keep dying on the regular. So what are two enterprising young men to do? They stood to make a fortune if they could keep up a decent supply of fresh cadavers for the anatomist, and there was only one surefire way to keep up a supply of fresh meat. If you want someone done right, you have to kill him yourself. Burke met Mary Patterson, the woman whose body they'd just sold in the back of that house on Surgeon Square, and one of her pals in the Cannon Gate. He got them royally pished. He took them back to his brothers for breakfast and kept plying them with booze. Mary fell asleep, face down on the table and her pal left after Burke's wife burst in and accused them of being, to use a well-worn phrase, at it. Uh, she probably stopped us doubling her money that day. She's a jealous woman, so she is the wife. Burke and Hare didn't care who you were, as long as nobody would miss you. But this time, someone questioned where the pair got their bodies. One of Dr. Knox's assistants thought he recognised her, but he couldn't put his finger on where from. Knox didn't care. The corpse was brilliant, and he kept it suspended in whiskey for three months before dissecting it. Burke and Hare went on to murder seven more people and sell them to Dr. Knox before they set their sights on 18-year-old James Wilson. He was disabled, physically and intellectually, and the two resurrectionists saw him as an easy target. Your arse. Daft James as strong as an ox. He wouldn't take a drink either, so it took ages to get him pinned down. The young man was a familiar figure in Edinburgh. He lived on the streets. He begged. He would chat to you when he walked by. He was a nice boy. People knew Daft Jamie. So when Jamie turned up at Dr. Knox's school, his assistants began to ask questions. Knox batted them away. This couldn't possibly be someone they knew. Don't be so stupid. Stop asking questions. When Jamie was reported missing, the doctor moved the body to the top of the dissection queue, but not before he removed the boy's head and feet. Things were unravelling for Burke and Hare and they were frequently coming to blows and drink-fueled arguments over money and morality. And so, it is the 31st of October, 1828, Halloween. William Burke is lying over the chest of a woman named Margaret Doherty. The life is draining out of her while William Hare covers her nose and mouth. Blood runs from somewhere on someone as she fights to hold on to the last of her essence. Every panting breath from hair flecks spit across her face. And then she's gone. They hide the body in some straw at the end of the bed and get on with their day. They couldn't leave it alone, the other lodgers. The greys or something, I think they were called. Kept asking questions when I wouldn't let the wife get something from her room. The greys had been paid off to stay somewhere else the night of the murder. And... For some reason, Burke and Hare left them alone for a bit when they returned the next day. It wasn't the best idea we ever had, I'll give you that. Anne Grey ran to the police, despite Burke's wife offering her £10 a week to keep the crime quiet and become an accomplice. Burke and Hare immediately ran to Knox with the body. It was the best way to get rid of it, after all. But that didn't help. The murderers and the wives couldn't keep the story straight, and the police found bloodstained clothes under the bed. They took Mr. Gray to Knox's medical school, and he identified the body as Margaret Doherty, the woman he had seen Burke and Hare with the night before. 
They were all arrested, and when interviewed, their answers were all over the map. Witnesses, like Mary Patterson's pal, began coming forward and details of more murders were revealed. The Lord Advocate knew that to get a confession, he would have to give something up. He gave William Hare the option to roll over on his partner, leading to Burke being prosecuted, found guilty, and sentenced to hang. Hare was allowed to walk scot-free. Burke's wife, Helen McDougall, ended up being let off too. Dr. Knox was spared prosecution because Burke absolved him of blame in a written statement. Burke declares that Dr. Knox never encouraged him, neither taught or encouraged him to murder any person, neither any of his assistants, that worthy gentleman, Mr. Ferguson, was the only man that ever questioned anything about the bodies. He inquired where we got that young woman, Patterson. Signed, William Burke, prisoner. It is the morning of the 28th of January, 1829. It's cold, really cold. But there are thousands of people on the streets as a man is led up a little flight of wooden steps to the gallows. Burke drops to his knees in prayer, ignoring the braying of the crowd before the noose is placed around his neck. The hangman pulls the black cap over the murderer's face as another shout goes up from the crowd. Hare! Hare! Where is Hare? In a week, William Hare will have disappeared in England, never to be heard from again. William Burke has no such luck. The platform drops. He twitches. He's dead within seconds. His body is taken away to be dissected by Dr. Monroe, the shabby anatomist. During the procedure, the doctor dips his quill pen into Burke's blood and writes, This is written with the blood of William Burke, who was hanged at Edinburgh. This blood was taken from his head. You've been listening to Scotland. It was written and produced by me, Michael Park, and is a production of Be Quiet Media. Mitch Bain makes the music for every episode of Scotland, and you can check out more of his great stuff, including his blind sales work. Yes, you heard that right. Search out Mitch Bain Music on Facebook. William Burke was portrayed by Chris Moriarty. You can find out more about the show on our website, thisisscotland.co, and on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram by searching Scotland Scottish History Podcast. Thanks for listening. Happy Halloween. <laughs>